Okay. Let me just kick off. Um, so hello everyone. Um, so today I'm challenging the future with Julia Allen. Uh, Julia, you know, lovely to to connect with you again. And um, so Julia is an autonomy and artificial intelligence chief scientist at Saab, which is a mouthful title, and it sounds super interesting. So Julia, um, I'd love just to start to talk about in your your career and um, what inspired you to pursue a career in that area, uh, and you know uh, tell us more uh, how you got here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to have this discussion. Uh, just a little bit about my background. So I started off in in math and graduate school in applied math, specialized in optimization, uh, which was a perfect field to uh, jump off into AI and machine learning as it, it started to gain more traction just with the the number of optimization problems that are solved simultaneously and and to to really achieve the machine learning capabilities that we've grown to love today. Um, I joined Saab about two years ago. At the time, we didn't have anything going on in autonomy AI in the US. Uh, and I took that as uh, my challenge. And we've grown the team uh, both organically and inorganically in, in through, through an acquisition to what it is today uh, at the forefront of uh, maritime autonomy, self-healing autonomy, computer vision capabilities across domains. Uh, my my background, um, prior to joining Saab, I was with the AE Systems Fast Labs, where I was a principal investigator for DARPA and ONR programs in autonomy and AI, Office of Naval Research, and the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the U.S., um, and really have a broad background across different domains, everything from undersea to space in uh, autonomous systems and uh, in AI with a, a specialty in, in explainable AI, which is what my dissertation research was in in combination with the, the DARPA program that I led called Competency-Aware Machine Learning. Oh, amazing, amazing. Sounds <laughs> super inspirational. And um, so you, you mentioned just an you know, explainable AI. And I, I, what, what I see in the market, so I'm, I'm mostly financial services, which is a very data-rich you know, environment as well. And I think people are very conservative about the AI. And I, I suspect being explainable is a key aspect. So, um, so could you give us like an introduction to that? So a simple definition of explainable AI for those who may not be familiar with the term. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll back up a little bit with the, the much uh, uh, contentious definition of AI first. Uh, it it kind of started out that AI or machine learning was gonna get broken down into supervised learning, uh, including deep learning, uh, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning. And then we've had the onset of generative AI and, and large language models that have, have grown in popularity uh, to expand that landscape. But AI also includes other types of autonomous uh, decision-making systems um, from traditional optimizations to, to rule-based systems. And people think about rule-based systems as pretty rudimentary, but uh, when you think about thousands of decision trees, you know, being uh, it, it automated uh, to complete a task, um, it does can lead to a, a great deal of reliable intelligence. And, and those, when you think about explainability, have a, a really nice uh, sort of built-in mechanism for how it reached a decision by traversing through those decision trees. And that's kind of how I think about explainable AI is broken out into two different uh, portions, one where the explainability mechanisms are built into the model 
something like, you know, like I mentioned, a, a decision tree or rule-based system, for example, uh, but even but even other sorts of uh, models, like, like large language models that have attention mechanisms, anything that's built into the model uh, beforehand that you can trace back to. Uh, and then the separate uh, grouping of explainable AI methods are, are post hoc or things that are done after the fact to try to understand what happened in that black box model. Um, and that's when you get into surrogate models that are set up to with those built-in explainable mechanisms that work on the same data to try to understand what happened in the, the black box model. Uh, so those are, are kind of a group of, of surrogate models, but then also doing uh, analysis over the features, the activations, the layers, and trying to relate all of the input data to the output data. And overall, when it comes to explainable AI, I view it as, as the degree to which a human can understand the reason for a decision. Um, so, so the relationships between the input data, the output data, all those intermediate decisions that are going on inside of that AI system, uh, and, and provide it to the user in a way that they can understand, ideally. Although sometimes we can just group them into different uh, thought processes, but not necessarily something that's easily understandable by humans. Got it. So that's kind of a, an overview. There's other, there's other versions of that. I think the last um, survey paper I read had 50 different explainable AI methods across the board there. So you know things like counterfactuals, like what if scenarios that says, more explanations on on why it's not something else rather than why it decided it, it is uh, something here, sensitivity analyses to, to adversarial attacks, all of those sorts of ways to analyze how your model works, uh, I think uh, can contribute to the explainable AI yeah. methods. But, but you know what, I think that's positive because <laughs> uh, sometimes I got the impression, you know, just honest, I don't watch the news very often, but every time I see something about AI, I got a sense that people position AI as something like a, you know, a black box and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think the explanation you gave, it just, at least to, to me, it, it shows that actually is a powerful technology, but there are several, let's say, levers to control and you know, make it operate in the in the way it intended to operate. So that's that's really really interesting. Now, um, but in the end of the day, I think with generative AI specifically, all the hype around that, we saw people now using it, right? So people are playing with generative AI using large language models like ChatGPT. So I think the question is. In terms of literacy, so what, why why people, let's say, should care about explainability, right? Because I'm just imagining in terms of what are the real world implications, right? So for the average person uh, like myself, like why should I care about explainability? Yeah, I, I think it really depends on how you're using the AI system too. If if you're using it in very low stakes applications where you're just looking for a suggestion or or what website to look at next, you know, the implications are pretty low. When mm -hmm. you're using it in other applications like the medical field or, or financial decisions that carry a lot of weight, um, obviously I'm, I'm working in the defense community. A lot of what we do has high stakes. That's when explainability really matters for the increased use at all of AI systems, because I think what we're saying, what we're seeing is people aren't using AI systems because, you know, they don't, they don't trust them. And, and I think explainability could help identify 
the areas when the AI system is producing results that aren't good, uh, or when it's producing results that are really founded in good, you know, bases that a human would say, okay, that makes sense. And that's when they'll start to build trust uh, in the systems. I think explainability um, would help identify when something like ChatGPT is hallucinating, right? Like right now it just provides the results. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, it it knows it hasn't seen inputs that's, that's similar to what it's receiving and it just kind of generates something random. Um, other times it might be that, that explainable AI can illuminate um, different biases or, or failures uh, um, that, you know, it can offer more insights into why an AI system is failing or why it's biased um, by by explaining why how it arrived at its result. Go ahead, go ahead. I had a, I had a recent experience where um, I was using ChatGPT to you know give me a, a a suggestion about a specific you know idea I had, and the answer, if you read the answer, was very, let's say, rational, very logic. But in the end of the day, I noticed that wasn't very, you know, uh, correct. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it's, it may be a good starting point to create content. But if, I suppose you always have the human element, right? You say, yeah, that makes sense. That's good enough. And I was thinking in terms of, you know, uh, there's a lot of developers now working with, with, um, with AI and more generative AI. And like I, I I suspect that as a developer, you have almost like this trade-off between you know being super sophisticated, but at the same time having some degree of transparency. Because exactly. AI algorithms are super complex. So mm-hmm. you see that like it's a it's a very I don't know balancing act, I suppose, for developers. Yeah, I I really like this topic because you know the just like in most of uh, <laughs> mathematics, there's no free lunch, right? Yeah. If you're optimizing for explainability, more likely than not, you're you're losing out on some performance or some fidelity. Um, and you know, if, again, I, I it all to me goes back to the stakes that you're working with. If it's if it's very low stakes, you probably want to optimize for performance, and people don't care, you know how it got to the result. But when you're working in high stakes applications, that's when it matters more. And people would people would rather have something that knew it didn't work in, in 99% of cases and, and trusted it in 1% of those cases, right? With it, with clear explanations and traceability of, of how it got there than, than the alternative. Um, you know, especially I, I think um, understanding models in general when you're implementing them as a developer what and where they fail. I think a, a lot of developers are really good at analyzing things like confusion matrices, which is when you know that your algorithm is more likely to get confused under a certain situation, maybe between two results that that are close. Um, yeah. and, and really understanding their systems that way. But it's manually intensive to do that uh, and exhaustively as well. And usually you're looking at uh, a very discrete or sense of sent uh size of outputs or or results rather than all of the the features that y- the user could care about um having issues with processing or or having you know confusions over so i think really getting to know your model well which is manually intensive is is one area where developers can spend more time just on the test evaluation side but also the tools for explainability you know aren't 
aren't readily available and useful in a model agnostic way. So I think also increasing the amount of tools that are that are available to developers to to implement and to look at out of the box is something that could help. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. There's no free lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree, but but at the same time, I'm thinking uh, it, it may be a something that's not mainstream today, but I believe I believe it will be in the near future, which is the definition of a developer. Because I think before to be a developer and play with AI, you had to have some kind of you know, very technical skills. And now with generative AI, what we have seen is like few people, you know, really using generative AI to create code, even though they don't have the expertise. Right. And that's just one example. Uh, and what I have seen, uh, you know, in my in my work life, is that I underestimated the power of these large language models, and I start to notice that um, you can perhaps use these models to give you, let's say, some direction in any decisions you are making. Because if if you consider a decision making process in terms of how much you know about the situation, and what you can predict in terms of, you know, if you take actions based on what you know. What would be the result? Well, you could definitely create a prompt, like a very complex prompt, give the model and see what it what it provides to you as an answer. So I think my question for you is, do, do you see an impact in, in decision making in terms of you know how AI or generative AI more specifically can influence decisions uh, and how people can use them? Because I, I don't see how can we escape that. Is, is that is really helpful. At least that's my opinion. It's super helpful. So how can you, you know, what, what where you see this kind of, you know, Gen AI, you know, influencing the decision making process? Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, for explainability, it, it can really help expedite the decision process, right? It it can help help point out where you know you the the user should pay more attention to making the decision. Again, I, I like to use the the example for. For the medical industry and if you have an image that's processed by ai pointing out and saying we think this area could be troubled right that's that's something that can cue the user to act faster by focusing on that area and confirming yep this is something or or no that's nothing and i think you know when it comes to explainability also the the opposite right if if the explanation doesn't quite make sense then maybe you shouldn't trust the result or or do the task fully manually um, when it comes to that. And I, you know, I agree with the the earlier part of your question about developers aren't are now, you know, regular, regular Joe's just using yeah. chat GPT to write code and how to maintain all of the the fidelity associated with someone with the experience versus someone without the experience. I've seen, you know, just an explosion of the no-code AI platforms with Amazon SageMaker and AutoML and and even our at Saab uh, Crowd AI company that that focused on the the defense domain just explode right. So ha having a greater detail and understanding those that how the AI system works, how the decisions are made, um, and how to leverage those in reality as as a user, I think it it's gonna it's only going to become more important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's the, it's the kind of stuff that we have to, you know, learn how to live with. Um, I don't think, I, yeah, I think it's it's too, it's too powerful and at the same time too helpful to ignore. 
Um, but I think there's an element. If you are, you know, leveraging the technology to make, even making better decisions, I think there's an element of trust. It's almost like, you know, you go to the doctor and he gives you a diagnosis or gives you a prescription. There's a degree of trust involved. Or when you, you know, put money in the bank in a savings account, there's a degree of trust. So in, in your view, how can we, you know, as practitioners, you know, help people to build trust in the technology? Because it's a, I think the, the, the large language model is just a tip of the iceberg. There's a whole value chain of infrastructure, cloud, you know, GPUs, all that stuff behind. It's complex, I appreciate. So in your view, how can we, you know, help um, build trust in this new technology? Yeah, for sure. I, I think trust is so important and, and it's hard for me to think of examples other than trusting people because when I think about things I really trust, it's probably, you know, only only really people. You know, I don't I don't trust uh, things uh, uh, by by their nature. Um, but, you know, the same reasons that we trust people are because of their certifications, right? Their medical degrees, their experience that you can see written down. And I think with AI systems, a, a better description of of its experience, a better description of the data it's been trained on, what scenarios it's been used in successfully, the different performance criteria that the the AI systems performed well or or poorly in, you know, yeah. uh, would would be useful for a user to get. There's been a lot of discussion about like nutrition facts, uh, kind of analogies for AI systems. So understanding how many how many examples it's seen and and what its performance was there maybe you know it it hasn't experienced something in the realm of what you're using it for um, then you wouldn't use that model for that purpose right you would you wouldn't trust it to make those decisions if if we were asking you know a large language model to give us uh, tax advice but it had no you know, it wasn't able to gain access to the IRS website or it didn't have permissions for certain data that you know is important for making yeah. those kinds of decisions, then then you wouldn't trust it, right? Um, or you you might trust it less. Maybe it could have gathered that information from blogs and other things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think understanding the training data that's been processed by the system you're using uh, and greater insights there could really build trust. Um, Certification methods, sure, you know, that would require a lot of standards committee. I mean, just like we have for people, right? Um, yeah. Lots of teachers and certification boards that go through and certify people. And I think you'd need something uh, analogous for AI systems there. And that kind of gets into regulation, which is a, is, <laughs> is a topic for another time. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, building trust, I think, is all about the the encouraging AI systems to have a better understanding of their limitations and being yeah. able to communicate those clearly to a user. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Um, yeah, always keeping the the human element at the center of the conversation. Uh, but you, you mentioned something that made me think, which is uh, the, 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 the results of, you know, um, of a recommendation from a large language model, it's, it's directly dependent on the quality of the data that sits behind that. And I notice uh, in my conversations with people that there is this kind of expectation that generative AI can address many problems, which I think it's true. But first of all, it's dependent on the quality of the data. And what I mean by that is data that 
if you think about, I don't know, a use case in financial services, right? That it, the data should represent in principle the society where you operate. So it shouldn't have like a bias. So, so there is a homework to be done in terms of to prepare uh, you know, your data before using large language models. And, and there's an aspect of synthetic data, which seems to be starting to become very relevant to use synthetic data to calibrate models in order to eliminate bias and you know other other distortions. So in in, in your view, um, do you see that kind of you know uh, false expectation as well, where people they think oh super exciting you know generative AI can address these and these problems, but the, the the big question is have you done your homework? Like your data state is it's good enough to you know generate good results. Do do you have an insight into that? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'll say underestimating its capability is something that that I've done as well. And there are things, there are a lot of things that it can do that I wouldn't think it would be able to do that it does well. So I think you know when we talk about limitations, let's not forget you know that it that a lot of AI systems are strong in in multiple tasks now. Uh, I think it used to be you know you you may think something is good for a single task or a single purpose, um, but the multitask AI, you know, obviously ChatGPT being being a, a big example um, is, is apparent. Uh, but I do think the quality of data is, is very important. Um, you know, the, that is how the decisions are made. I think that the, the quality of data, or at least the quantity of data is only gonna increase over time. I think there should be more time spent on the quality of data, as you point out. Um, when when there are gaps, augmenting it with synthetic data could be good, but it also could be bad, right? Yeah. Um, because those are those are not real examples. Um, so you know you might be teaching it to respond a certain way over uh, over data that that isn't uh, realistic enough. So it it kind of um, gets into that argument of of yeah I, I think your question too is related to interpolation versus extrapolation so if it's seen a lot of examples that are similar and it's had really good performance in the past you you kind of expect it to do well on very similar looking data but when it comes to extrapolating it to things that haven't happened or maybe that synthetically have happened and it's learned something from that but not not real events then that's when I think you see more of the potential for failure and the hallucination yeah. kind of uh, phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this connection between, you know, data quality and, you know, the quality of the results in large language models, I don't think that gets as much space in the headlines as it should. So, you no, know, thanks for that. That's super um, interesting. And so looking maybe, you know, for the future. Um, so where do you see this going um, in terms of how it might impact, you know, our lives as individuals or, you know, large corporations um, that we, we talked about decision making. So if you have to, you know, to guess, let's say, interesting use cases for the near future. So where do you see this going uh, in the medium to long run? Yeah, I think each each AI system having its own understanding of its of where it's going to do well and where it's going to fail. In the future, it should be table stakes. Every every model should 
should be providing that sort of information. And there should be more opt-outs, I think, from AI systems to say, I need help or I need a manual override. In this situation, I haven't been trained well. So just better understanding of its competency. I think, again, you know, low stakes applications running in the background to show ads, that sort of thing, it doesn't need those. But higher stakes things that affect money, health, you know, safety, all of those sorts of uh, higher stakes implications are really going to need better safeguards. Uh, and I think in the future, my hope is that all AI systems will have explainability mechanisms and also just guardrails for performance and understanding when it shouldn't be used and when to alert, uh, you know, like a, a human operator, something to take over. Yeah. I also hope in inexplainable AI that we get better mechanisms to query systems to understand their biases, their, their, you know, their, their lack of training in certain situations and them being able to self-report based on a query. And the query could be, you know, input data breakdown or training data breakdowns along this single feature. Maybe it's, you know, uh, a racial feature or or a gender feature to understand the biases of the system uh, if the input is, is related to people data and that sort of thing. But it, it could be other features that are in their natural media like sounds or or images of things that that you think it can process, but you're not sure on it on its competency there. So being able to have queries from a user to a system to understand the performance limitations and performance strengths, frankly. Yeah. Uh, to confirm its its abilities, um, and taking that a step further, um, being able to do that in a in a conversational way, and I don't mean like a verbal conversation. I mean, if you receive the results and and maybe you know they they illuminate uh, that it hasn't been trained in a certain way, you can drill down to really get at the the root cause of what's missing, and maybe that prompts you to to find new data that can address that limitation. Um, but really, you know, I think interactive explainable AI methods is, is another area area of growth and um, something that should be should be focused on. Yeah, yeah. No, I like the the way you 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 put that in terms of interacting with the technology and refining, you know, your logic and challenging the model. So yeah, I I, I think I have a I have a question that maybe it's related to that. So I started to use, um, you know, ChatGPT a lot over the last few months. I don't claim to be a, you know, a, a prompt engineer, but I'd like to to hear from you. You know, do you think that's the skill we all should have? Uh, so I, I'm kind of, you know, having a lot of fun in doing exactly as you mentioned. Probably not as sophisticated, but you know, as having a dialogue with the model and trying to refine my ideas, trying to get feedback on his says, you know? So do you think, you know, prompt engineering is the is the big skill we should, you know, double down as, as humans and professionals? That's that's a tricky question. I, I think, you know, anytime you have a conversation about AI now, it, it's really centered yeah. around G, chat GPT, but she, it is part of long, large language models and, and really text-based data sort of, uh, AI systems that I I personally haven't had a ton of experience in, but prompt prompt engineering, I mean, it's not going to go away, right? And I think it's I think there's a whole whole bunch of jobs that we haven't thought about. I think prompt engineering might be the first one people are recognizing it as a an interaction with AI systems, but there's going to be a whole bunch of 
AI maintainer and, and robotics, robot supervisor and, and yeah. all sorts of ways that we interact with things that we don't interact with much today. Um, you know, I think being able to leverage the AI tools that are out there to do any job better is, is going to be in demand, right? Yeah. So prompt engineer, maybe, but maybe you really want a uh, prompt engineer with experience in the finance market, for example, or, gotcha. you know, that have other sorts of tailored experience that will bring value to the, to the system or, you know, being able to guide it with new data types to augment its capabilities. Um, yeah, I, I haven't given it a, a ton of thought, uh, but, but I think you're, no, you're that's fun. I, I, I was just oh, curious whole, because it's a fascinating a whole ecosystem. Yeah, a whole ecosystem of AI interactive jobs <laughs> will yeah. be will be created. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I agree. I think I like your optimism because I think that's where maybe we don't have a view. I just remember in the maybe in the nineties, I don't know, if you tell someone you'd be a web designer, people would think it would be like crazy, right? What are you talking about? And today, a web designer is like a profession, right? Like any other profession, and maybe. To your point, there are professions that we cannot anticipate, but I think that's the beauty of the technology. You know, new kinds of demands will be created and new opportunities will be generated. Um, cool, but, but listen, uh, Julia, uh, for me, like, I, I learned a lot from you today and I really, I really appreciate you making the time to you know, give us this inspiring uh, conversation and I'm sure uh, everybody will benefit from that. So just want to say, you know, thank you for, for making the time. It's good to see you again and looking forward to keep the, the connection open. So thanks. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me and I look forward to more conversations. Thank you. Yeah, lovely. Thanks.